Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so happy to have my RA and Cavalier King Charles Spaniel friend, Kelly Conway here today. Welcome. Super, thank you. Yeah, I know. I'm so glad to finally, I got to finally meet you in person at the rheumatology conference and then now uh, interact with you more deeply on the podcast. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for really happy to be here. Yeah. And can you just as to start off, give us a quick intro to you and where you live and what is your relationship to arthritis? Okay. Um, well, I'm Kelly Conway. I am the co-founder of the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. I'm also the author of the blog, As My Joints Turn, my autoimmune soap opera. Uh, I am from Philadelphia. Professionally, I'm a speech language pathologist and uh, my relationship with arthritis, I started having symptoms at 14, tons of tests, nothing came back at 19. They actually did surgery on my knee, um, found nothing and were very confused by it. So I kind of grew up feeling like a hypochondriac. Um, in my early twenties had a big flare up, but again, nothing showed in my blood. And then in my early thirties, I think it was around 31, 32, I had about a year of every single joint in my body swollen, in pain, wearing braces, going from doctor to doctor, and finally got a diagnosis of Sjogren's syndrome, which I really don't think I have. Um, and so they started treating me. And so my diagnosis has gone from rheumatoid arthritis to Sjogren's to um, Right now, I think they're saying it's ankylosing spondylitis or non-radiographic axial spondyloarthropathy. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've never been, you know, I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a mystery patient. I think there's a lot of people like me, but um, 
at this point, I think they changed my diagnosis to sort of figure out a medication that will treat me. I also have a skin condition. So they tried psoriatic arthritis for a Mm. while, but nothing improved with that. So, and I apologize if I cough, I'm just getting over pneumonia and COVID. So I mean, it's up on me. Well, and you know, it's funny, my first react, okay, I have like a million reactions, but one of my first reactions to you saying that is like, wow, like I am so in awe of how tough all of my like autoimmune warrior friends are, right? We'll be like, I don't want to have to, I don't want to cancel this podcast recording. So I'm going to push through this, you know, and where I'm like, also part of me is like, man, like I, I sometimes I don't want to like reward people for like pushing, do you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm I'm just like reflecting out loud, but, um, or I don't want people to think like that you have to be like inspirational all the time or, you know what I'm saying? Right. And honestly, I probably feel as inspirational as a rock. I'm, I'm, I'm so tired all the time, but, um, yeah, it's, it's hard, but I think finding other people was the saving grace for me because my dog thinks she's a cat. She's blurred out there, but she, she's so great. We have twin dogs. Um, and you will, you posted a picture the other day and I was like, when did I take that picture of Finney? And I realized it was Teddy. Um, yeah, I think finding people like me with very, maybe not exactly the same stories, but similar stories. And Mm -hmm. it was like this big aha moment. And that's when I got involved with Tiffany Westrich Robertson and we started, you know, first it was a movement, then a foundation and just because connecting with people was so important. And Dr. Google is a scary place to visit. And so, yeah, we just sort of, would you please stop? Thank you. Um, She's obnoxious right now. Um, But I, yeah, I think finding people and I get very inspired by so many people. Like I remember meeting you years ago in Boston, maybe. That's right. Yep. In 2019. Yeah, and when I found out you were an OT, I was so excited because as a speech therapist, yeah. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so awesome. And I got you involved with our World Autoimmune Arthritis Day because yes. I knew what a lot of people don't understand is that when you are in like rehab medicine or OT, speech, PT, you don't think of things. I look at a situation and I'm like, okay, how can I make this problem better? Mm -hmm. most people don't think of that so all the adaptive stuff that you do it's stuff that I've done from working with OTs for so many years um Uh, so that's why I was so excited to meet you because I'm like oh my gosh this is something that we really need to have people think about that there are ways to adapt and make life easier and you know it's not always I can't it's I can but with some modifications um oh that's beautiful I met you again at ACR in DC. And I remember I didn't realize it was you. And somebody said, did you meet Cheryl? She also has a Cavalier. Yeah. And then I looked, I'm like, oh, I do know her. Wait a minute. That's so, so funny. So- I know. Well, and yeah, I, I, first of all, Tiffany did come on the podcast um, and I will link to her episode in the comments. Cause yeah, both of you are using that word inspiration. You're both inspirations to me. What you've created with the IFAI arthritis is just, I mean, it's yeah. such a it, it, example. She, truly, I, her ideas have always been amazing and we've, you know, evolved into AI arthritis and 
she had this dream and she had this vision and I've always been more of the backseat person Mm -hmm. uh, and supporting and because I'm still working full time, but um, Mm -hmm. her vision is incredible what she's built and I'm just proud to be a part of it. Um, I think we've, yeah. Yeah, we're really take a team. That's what I'm working on recently is delegating more. And, you know, you can have, you can, you need to have a visionary, you know, on the team, but you also need the people to execute and, you know, tie up loose ends and, and, and also just have a different perspective. So I love, I love your guys's team, you know, teamwork approach. Um, but yeah, I actually, sorry, I, I, because we have so many similarities working in rehab fields and having the same dog for some reason, I thought you had definitive for lack of a better word, rheumatoid arthritis, but you know, nothing is so clear cut typical, you know, the, the the typical is to be atypical when it comes to these diseases. Exactly. And a lot of times, because it's so confusing to so many people, a lot of times I just say, I have RA to Mm -hmm, general mm -hmm. who's ever heard of non-radial graphic axial fondly or arthropathy. Nobody has heard of that. And a lot of times when my doctor and I talk, like I have the sausage fingers and I have like the lower back pain, but then I also have like, you know, symmetrical joint pain. Mm-hmm. So she's like, you know, you have so many characteristics of different things. So we really focused a lot on the spondyloarthropathy mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. past few years. And she often refers to it as autoimmune arthritis, which, you know, AI arthritis, when we were IFAA, that we were like, one of the first groups to really start using that term Mm -hmm. and it just makes sense. I definitely have autoimmune issues and it manifests in my arthritis. So, you know, day by day, it's always an adventure. Well, and I just love the name of your blog as my joints turn my autoimmune soap opera, which is a play on as the world turns American soap opera. You're probably a little too young to remember this, but Carol Burnett, had a show and oh. she used to have a skit on her show called as my stomach turns <laughs> which was a play on as as the world turns oh. and it be just so overly dramatic and my mom used to use that as like a joke like oh her life is a is a soap opera i call it as my stomach turns and it just always stuck in my head so originally my blog was like oh my life with you know arthritis it was just something simple and then one day i was like as my joints turn. That's the name. So I do, I, I I love the name and I, I keep the domain because I, I do. I'm, I haven't been writing as much. I've been focused on other writing lately, but I try and bring some humor and some realism. I'm not one to give advice and research topics. I just basically blog about my life and what it's like living with the disease. Cause sometimes I think people just need to know they're not alone. You know what? It's so I I have come so full circle on that because I felt like initially, like sharing my story was mm-hmm. just wasn't enough, quote unquote. I was like, I want to share all my like OT tips and hacks, and people still really mm-hmm. respond to those, right? Or like help people understand, like let's say for example, how fatigue works or how what we know about how fatigue works and autoimmune disease and what we don't know and all these deep topics. But so often, what people res- say that they respond to the most in something I've shared is like, you know, let's say they're 23 years old. They just got diagnosed. So like, I'm just, it's nice to see that you like, you know, have a job and have a kid and like, or have a dog or like just doing the normal, like elevating the normal 
everyday living that you, you know, and thriving you can do in your daily life, um, is, is something that's really valuable. And, and you, like you said earlier, you know, knowing that you're not alone right? Um, in the soap opera elements of it. And I think even just, you know, we could spend the whole hour just talking about what it's like to not have that definitive diagnosis to ground you. Because for me having it, I, I was in the mystery quote unquote, accused of being a hypochondriac category until I wasn't like, it was only a couple years and those were horrible years. But when I was feeling really sick and didn't know why and went to all these different doctors. But then when I got that definitive diagnosis of RA, it was like, this is a textbook case, home run case. Like every single one of your numbers is like off the charts. You have the subjective signs, you have the objective signs, right. you have a great aunt that has rheumatoid arthritis, like so a tiny bit of a family history, like it would have been even more of a home run if it was like a full family history. But, you know, so there was no doubt ever since I got my diagnosis. And I think I've taken that for granted. Like in your case, I think it's hard to, I mean, I'm just mm -hmm. imagining it's hard to have that ambiguity. And nobody wants a diagnosis, although you want a diagnosis, yes. you know what I mean? That's, and that's so confusing. And I actually, I've written about my diagnosis journey several times. Um, Rick Phillips, who does RA diabetes, he always used to do an RA blog week and he included me, even though I was always like, I don't know what I have anymore. Um, and I would write about diagnosis journey. And then um, I've recently moved into writing books. I'm a big romance novel fan and I've been writing books and I decided I've never Years ago, I read a story and the author wrote about her mother-in-law passed away from rheumatoid arthritis, lung disease. So mm. like the fibrosis with lung disease. And I was like, thank you. Because my friend just lost her mother to that. And I was like, I've never seen anybody mention, you know, and I was like, you know, maybe people will read that and look it up and then learn something. So I just decided I wanted to write stories that showed people going through their journey of diagnosis and the the one book I just finished it is my story of diagnosis it's definitely not my life in the in the story but that whole part and I read it and I gave it to some friends and I'm like is it too confusing is it they're like well it is kind of all over the place and I'm like but that's what it was mm -hmm. and I really didn't want to change it because it was going from doctor to doctor it was you know, wanting a diagnosis, but not wanting a diagnosis. It was wanting answers, but hoping I could just change my diet and everything will be okay. Yeah. And so I kind of poured that in and it was hard and I had to sit back and I haven't reread it in a while, but it was hard putting it down on paper and really, oh my gosh, she's resting her head on my shoulder. Um, yeah, it was hard going back to it because I'm, gosh, I'm like 20 years out already. Uh, and thinking about, you know, how hard that was and how I was made to feel crazy. And I was told it took you so long to get sick. To, it took you so long to make yourself this sick. It's going to take your, you a long time to get better. And I remember sitting in my what? car when, the, oh yeah, sitting in my car when that was said to me. And I literally was like, wait, I did this to myself. What? Yeah, that it, yeah, that's wrong. I mean, obviously you don't need me to tell you that. I remember at the end, she said, you need to get yourself some help. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get myself some help and I'm going to get myself a doctor who can help me and not blame me. 
and I hung up the phone. I never went back to them again, but it was just, you, I have some of those memories that just stick out in my mind. I could forget why I walk into a room, but I'll never forget so many pieces of those vignettes in my mind of trying to figure out what was wrong with me and how sad I was and how bitter I was. All my friends were having kids and getting married and, and I could barely, I walked out of a supermarket because I couldn't lift my arm up to get a box of tampons off a shelf. Mm. And I was too embarrassed to ask for help. And then I would get a message from my friends like, Hey, do you want to do this this weekend? And I'm like, I, I can't. I can't, I can't. And so it really, it was very painful. Um, I didn't write a lot about that, but just all of those things just stick in your mind. So when I, you know, 20 years later, um, people will say, oh, I bet you wish you just didn't have this. And I'm like, of course I do, but I have to look at all the things it did bring into my life. It brought me some friends that are, you know, very close friends. It, it got me opportunities um, to do things. And, you know, my mom will still say, don't post that on Facebook. And I'm like, mom, so I post mine. I got, I, so funny. Mom, you got to remember I'm an advocate. Like people expect me to post things. Uh, yeah. and I'm not, you know, and I know some people think I do it for attention, especially, you know, family probably mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like Why are you posting that, but you know, I do it because it connects with people. And I was so desperate in the early days to connect with somebody who understood. It is really, it, I truly believe it's a trauma to be undiagnosed or to particularly to have, to have doctors who don't believe you or who accuse you of faking it, because it's one thing. And I, I replay this I will replay this probably the rest of my life. Um, You know, the, what I wish the doctors had said to me. And again, this was only two years. I went through this. I mean, you've gone through two decades, but um, not to play like suffering Olympics, but you know, I, I wish they had, it's okay to say a doctor to say to me, it would have been okay for them to say, we don't know why you're feeling so sick. Like we, we understand that like a year ago, you were the captain of the college soccer team. You were mm-hmm. eating healthy. You exercise every day. You're super muscular. Like I could literally run a mile in like five and a half minutes. Like I was the picture of health. Nothing happened. Right. I just started wasting away and then had one joint that hurt. And the rest of my body just felt really off. And until the morning I woke up and all my joints hurt. And then I got my diagnosis. But long story short, if they had just said, we believe you, like there's no... Like they would be like, there's no reason for this to happen. So you must be making it up. Whereas I'm like, I have no reason to make it up. Like, so you can exactly. see me getting riled up. Like, so if they just said, we don't know why, but, and we, I honestly, like I've reached the end of what I can do to help you in this moment, but I believe you. And like, here's some resources or come back if anything changes. And like, that would have been such a different conversation than exactly. this kind of like you, well, I can't figure it out. So you must be faking it's, or Yeah. Anyway, so I'm just so sorry you've gone through that. Well, I had, uh, when I finally did get a diagnosis, I went to this doctor. She was brilliant. She really helped me. I I didn't feel great, but I was so much better than what I was. I was no longer wearing braces. I didn't limp. I did limp, but I didn't limp every day. I was doing a lot better. And she ended up changing jobs and she sold her practice but she ended up selling it to somebody at a different hospital. And even though it wasn't that much further, I just didn't want to do that. 
So I went to, I found another rheumatologist in that hospital and he literally looked at me, looked at my blood work and said, there's nothing wrong with you. I think you should come off all your medication. Okay. And I was like, what? He goes, there's nothing wrong with you. I go, then why are all my joints swollen? I don't know. And he refused to redo my prescriptions. Like, like the, even the, like Plaquenil, he refused. I didn't need it. So I finally went to the doctor that my doctor sold the practice to. And she sat with me for an hour and a half. And I told her what the other doctor said. And I was like, is this all in my head? And she pulled out my file, which was thick. And she goes, this is not all in your head. Yeah. Goes And the person I trust more than anything is the person who she got the practice from. She's like, I mentored with her and I entered with her and she was my mentor. And she's like, you're absolutely not. She sat with me for an hour and a half. And I was like, this is my doctor. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, if you can get and people who live in more like urban areas, like, you know, have more options in the right. rural areas, you might not have access to second opinions, but I really do advocate if, if possible, it, or if you don't feel satisfied, you know, with the care you're getting, or you feel like the person, you know, isn't listening, or you just have a complex case. Some people right. have just complex cases. And that's actually why a lot of people, I actually ask rheumatologists all the time, like, why did you choose rheumatology? I actually feel like it's the hardest medical specialty. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people think like brain surgery is the hardest. Well, at least you can look at it. Like there's the brain, <laughs> like I'm doing surgery. Like here's this vessel. It goes here. Like, whereas with rheumatology, it's like so ephemeral, right? Like there's these conditions and no one really understands exactly how pain works and they fluctuate and they're dynamic. And sometimes like, why does Enbrel work for some people with RA and not others? And why do the jack inhibitors work differently than the, you know? So, um, anyway, you have to have a high, I I call it like an ambiguity tolerance, you know, (laughs) just like they call it with kids. We work on frustration tolerance. I think with autoimmune, we have to work on our ambiguity tolerance of like, I don't know, it could be this, it could be that. Right. And my doctor has been really good. And you know, we'll say, well, how can we make this better? And I, I said to her at one point, I, I was at a point in my life where I was like, I don't think it can get better. I don't believe because mm-hmm. it hasn't in so long. So it's, yeah, it's a roller coaster. It's definitely a roller coaster. Um, and right now I'm on medication that I feel fairly good. Mm-hmm. I've been failing on medication for almost two years, finding nothing that worked and tons of steroids tons of steroids and I've gained so much weight and I feel horrible about myself and I would try to walk, but when I would walk, I couldn't work because I was so in so much pain at work. So then everything kind of got thrown off. So now I'm on a medication where I'm, I'm doing infusions, which is a hassle to go and get it done, but I'm doing it and my body feels so much better, but I'm constantly sick and trade-offs. it's the trade-off and I'm not like, I'm not like just a sinus infection. I'm like, Oh, pneumonia. Um, now I just got over a bout of COVID and then rebound COVID. And that's not from, you know, obviously it's not from, I was exposed to that and that's how I got it, but I've just been so run down and so hard. Um, just every little day things It's just even showering. Like, I'm like, I gotta go shower tonight. 
okay, how I, like, it's just, it, it takes so much energy to do everything and taking care of my, you know, my elderly mom, you know, just even doing her laundry for her. It's, mm-hmm. I'm exhausted. And then, you know, God love her. She'll say, oh, can you go do this for me? And I, I want to get angry because I'm like, I really can't do it, but I can't right. say no. To her. And then, you know, I'm struggling this week, but you know, it, it's a balance and sometimes it's hard to find that balance. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, it, it, sometimes you just only have so much energy, but you know, yeah. and I think it is such a trade-off like, okay, I want my joints to feel better and I want my, to control the overall inflammation, but is it worth exactly you know, the increased infection risk, especially when you work with kids? If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks, and it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room, the capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. And so that brings me to my next topic, because um, people do, especially the young people getting diagnosed with, you know, autoimmune arthritis often will be like, you know, how did you choose to be an uh, occupational therapist or, you know, what are some career fields that are easier or harder to do? Did that factor into your decision or did you always know you wanted to be an SL or tell us what you do? Sorry. Okay. <laughs> they well, can't I- read my mind. People listening. I'm- 
I'm a speech language pathologist. Yes. I fell into it. I never heard of it as a kid. Um, I went to Catholic school, so we didn't really okay. have therapies. Um, I was in the school of communications and I was trying to apply into the school of communications at my college and they just didn't have any more room and they stopped taking applications my sophomore year. So they said they were not taking any for another year, possibly two. And I was like, well, what do I do? So I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, oh, well, I take communication disorder. So I was looking at her classes and I'm like, that sounds interesting. And I wanted communications as communication disorders. And the funny thing is I walked into my first classes and there was my best friend from high school and her college roommate. So the three of us are still SLPs today. Um, Amazing. Two of my closest friends are speech language pathologists. And what I say to, I'm always, most of the, the people I work with, they have no interest in taking students, but I always do take students uh, because I, I think being a speech therapist or an OT or PT, I think they're the greatest jobs ever because you have so much flexibility. Uh, I could go virtual. Um, I could work in a hospital. I can work in a school setting. Um, I could do accent reduction. I can do all kinds of things. Granted, you have to become highly qualified in these things and know what you're doing. Do I know what I'm doing in accent reduction? No, which is why I don't do it. But I know right. it's something that but you I could. want. Exactly. I could, if I looked into it, you could do, you know, um, feeding and swallowing therapy, which I, I do really enjoy. Um, and it was kind of interesting when my dad needed speech therapy for swallowing. Um, it was funny that I was telling him stuff. And of course, oh, who are you, a doctor? And right. so then speech therapist would work with him. I'm like, oh, that sounds so familiar. I wonder yeah. where I heard that before. <laughs> So like those little things, um, but I always say, I don't know any OT, PT or speech therapist that don't like what they do. They don't like the paperwork. They don't like yeah. dealing in insurance and all that stuff, but they all love what they do. Um, so I think those three careers, I am just very passionate about trying to get kids to do them, to, to look into it. So I recommend a lot of kids go in and all the kids that want to be doctors, I'm like, become a rheumatologist. Yes, so, yes, yes. So it gets brought up a lot. And I'm like, you should go into rheumatology. Yeah, I do the same. I, I try to encourage people too, if I know that they're in med school. But yeah, can you just briefly tell the listeners, you know, because I think a lot of people hear speech language pathology and there's this old idea from when I was young that, oh, speech therapy is just helping people articulate better. Right which I did go to speech for articulation as a child because I was shewo quo for a long time. I really struggled with R and L. Um, well, R, it, R is the reason I dye my hair because it stresses me out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, again, I didn't know about that. I didn't remember kids going. I know kids did go to speech therapy because I remember kids who said R's and L's incorrectly. That's one part of my job. I also work with um, kids who have expressive and receptive language disorders. So how they are able to express themselves, how they're able to comprehend spoken language. Um, sometimes kids have uh, disorders in terms of fluency or stuttering. There's voice issues. Um, not always my specialty with voice issues, but I have worked with people with voice issues with Parkinson's. Um, 
but my area of specialty, I've really focused the past, gosh, 32 years on autism and augmentative and alternative communication. So my area of specialty is really people who either need help augmenting their their speech or we need to give them an alternative means of communication such as using uh, a device that will speak for them uh that's what i that's really my passion and what i specialize in and i try and i used to do more volunteering with like als patients and helping set them up and troubleshoot when they couldn't get in touch with people um that's something i really enjoy uh and I love when my kids will come in and they'll give me some new and exciting information on their device. And yeah. they're so excited to tell me something and uh, their parents will say, oh, you know, my daughter texted me the other day using her device. And I'm like, I still have kids that I taught how to text years ago who still text me like 50 times a day. And that's oh. fine. They, nobody's supposed that's to have my phone, but you know what? It's in their, it's in their program and they have to text somebody. So they're going to text me and you know, the so one reminds me whenever the voice is on or dancing with the stars. And yeah. so it's all about communication. So speech is people often look at OT and PT and they're like, you can see a physical, mm-hmm. you can't always see a speech issue. Right. So about learning how to become a better communicator. Um, and probably the most work I do is in pragmatic language and social skills. And, and um, I work with secondary students so middle and high school and it's just really fun like helping them prep for job interviews and you know how to engage with peers I've even you know how are you going to ask somebody out on a date what are you going to do if you really want to ask them and it's those little things if you go to a dance how do you make small talk so I have a lot of fun with my job I think that's why I'm still doing it I just I do I love the people I work with and I love the kids I work with and I, I think, yeah, I worked in both a um, elementary and a high school. And a lot of times people who go into pediatrics, they really want to work with the little kids, but, you know, middle school and high school are such fascinating times, you know, to be there for a child and helping with those life skills. Like we had a program through the district I worked for that also had like, a, it was called like life skills and they would do 18 to 21 year olds with disabilities would still qualify, you know, for services through the school. Um, and it's just really yeah, helping people get a job at, you know, Starbucks or get, um, you know, job experience. Um, it's, it's really, yeah, it's a great, it's a great area if you want to really be able to in, in help someone else improve their quality of life, but it can be hard when your own quality of life has been negatively affected by your own chronic illness. Right. right. So, um, can you share a little bit how you've coped on the job with, I'm sure it's like ups and downs, you know, but. Well, say like the invisible illness. Um, When I first got sick, I was in grad school. So I was originally a special education teacher and I went back to school. Um, So when I was in grad school, that's when I got really sick. And so I think that going to school and becoming a speech therapist kept me sane. And I remember my one professor said, well, it's interesting, you know, you don't have to walk well to be able to be a speech therapist. And I'm like, you don't, but when you work in a school and you have to go get the kids, you, you do a lot of walking in a school. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my high school is ginormous. Yeah. So I, I eventually, I, my original 
start of my career was early intervention. I did three to five and then I did mm. zero to three, which was a really interesting mm-hmm. year doing feeding and working with little kids and their families. Um, and then 10 years ago for my health, I was like, I can't keep working with kindergartners. I just can't. They use me as a tissue and that's yeah. who they are but I get too sick. So I ended up switching to secondary and I would say my first two or three years, my immune system was a little bit better and, you know, slowly that's still deteriorating. So getting sick is my biggest, my biggest issue with everything because when I'm sick, everything just gets thrown off. So Right. And it's interesting. I remember asking my rheumatologist um, years ago when I first became an OT and I was looking into different settings. I always thought I would want pediatrics and, you know, school-based or outpatient, but I also was open to other settings. I actually really liked my skilled nursing internship, um, but it was a pretty swanky skilled nursing placement. They told me they're like, don't think that everywhere is like this. It was really nice. Um, but anyway, Um, and my doctor said, you know, you would think that everyone who, who was on biologics, which are a kind of medicine for rheumatoid arthritis, you know, you'd think that they would all be getting really sick all the time. She's like, but I have people who are flight attendants and kindergarten teachers and stuff who don't get sick all the time. So it's still, again, that ambiguity of like, some people are getting sick all the time. Some aren't. Why is that? But see, I was, I was the kid growing up who always got sick. Yeah. Yeah. up that every year ended up in the hospital, I think until I was like nine or 10, oh like my gosh. dehydrated, I would get really sick. I'd get horrible like infections, like sinus infections and bronchitis. And so I've just always been like this. And the older I get, the more I feel it wearing me down like this in September, I had pneumonia and which is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's the second time I've had pneumonia. Both times I thought I was having an RA flare. I contributed all the joint pain, the feeling lousy. I twice I've done this. It wasn't until I came home and I had 104 fever. I came home, I laid down, I woke up. I'm like, oh wait, no, something's really wrong. Um, But yeah, that's how lousy I had become used to feeling. So then I got over that and then I got hit with COVID and then rebound COVID. COVID was a big topic for me. I don't know if you know, I, I lost my father. Yeah, I'm so sorry. He yeah. had fallen prior to vaccines in 2020. He had fallen, broke a hip. He can, we found out there was COVID in his nursing home where, where he, it wasn't, it was a rehab hospital, but it's set up like a nursing home. And we found out um, there was COVID in the building and we tried to get him out, but we weren't able to. Nobody would take him. Um, so hard. We were talking about bringing him home and uh, I got the phone call that he ended up rushed to the hospital and it was, you know, he ended up with sepsis and the COVID pneumonia and everything. And, you know, people still will say, oh, well, did he have pre-existing conditions? Yeah, but he didn't have COVID when he went to the hospital. And that is what caused everything to spiral down. And three weeks after he died, my uncle, same thing, fell in a nursing home doing rehab because we couldn't get him into a rehab hospital uh, and he contracted COVID. Um, So it was just extremely difficult. And again, being immunocompromised, very difficult. Um, My mother with COPD, I made the cover of the newspaper because I drove like, I forget, like 300 miles round trip just to get her the COVID vaccine. Um, 
because I was adamant and my mother did, she fell this past summer and she was in a rehab and then she had to go into a temporary nursing home and she did get COVID and she did get pneumonia and guess what? She, she's fine. And if you would have asked me that back then, I would have thought my father would have survived COVID easier than my mom because of her breathing. Mm. So yeah, I, I, you know, I stressed that the vaccines worked for my family. And even though, you know, I ended up getting COVID two years and nine months into the pandemic. I, it was annoying because I don't get colds. I get sick. I get an infection. Right, right, right. I don't get a cold. I, and, and I felt like I had a cold and I'm like, this is what I've been saying to doctors for years. I don't get colds. And I was literally sitting there and I'm like, this is not something I'm used to feeling. So it was a rotten cold, but, uh, it was definitely a learning experience and I didn't get as sick, but the fatigue is what's killing me. But COVID was something I wrote a lot about in terms of how it impacted my life. Um, why I was making the choices I needed to make, why I was being super cautious. Um, you know, and I think people did connect with it. People disagreed with me and that's, they're right. I'm not telling you how to live your life. I'm just saying how I'm living mine. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's been, yeah. And I think I, it's funny because this hasn't come up too, too much on, on the podcast so far. Um, but but yeah, I'm curious um, because it obviously seems like you've you were very a, a really strong advocate for mm-hmm. you know your mom getting the best care possible and masking. I'm assuming and getting the vaccines and um, how has it been? Like you do, you do seem to be somebody who has good maybe like boundaries. Like I'm like a people pleaser, so it's I still struggle sometimes with being like. What are they going to think about me? You know, like worrying what others think. So I still get that. And, you know, through, I had depression prior Mm -hmm. to all of this. So um, in 2020, I lost my dog, George Grace, who again was the ultimate boonie dog. Um, I lost her the very two weeks into the pandemic and my life kind of was crushed. Um, But somebody who bought the book that I wrote about Georgia, got me my puppy, my Finney. Um, So she brought me joy. And I think it was meant to be because I don't think I could have handled George's care, which was 17 pills a day and two shots of insulin and working five jobs. I don't think I could have maintained that with also taking care of my mom, losing my dad, losing my uncle. Uh, And then I lost a cousin Christmas Eve as well. So it was like, kind of like, a huge, huge thing. So I think the puppy came into my life at the right time, but I think, I don't think I was very good at communicating the level of depression I was going through. Mm-hmm. And I really did cut people off. And I've said to some people, I'm really sorry. Some people were like, we get it. It's okay. And other people have pushed me away. And there's still some people that I'm like, I need to repair those bridges, mm-hmm. but I have no energy to do it. Um, but I sort of, you know, my closest friends really did get it. Other people kind of just let me go. And that, that's fine. I was being a crappy friend. Um, at work, I really held my boundaries. Um, oh, have you? I'm sorry. I meant to ask this earlier because people ask me all the time, should I disclose? And of course, I can't tell you whether you should or shouldn't disclose your disability at the, in the workplace. But do they know? I don't have anything official with like 
accommodations. Okay. My coworkers know because I couldn't hide the limping. I couldn't hide that, you know, I can't type anymore today. Or if I, uh, yeah. you know, there were days I couldn't get shoes on. So I'd come in with bedroom slippers. Um, I'm very open about that. And most of them are friends with me on Facebook. So they've seen my blog. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't needed accommodations other than handicap parking. And right. I will, my dog is snoring. I apologize if you can hear oh, I that. I can't even hear it. No. <laughs> She's, she's, she's not as loud as my previous dog, but she's pretty loud. Um, but yeah, I, handicap parking is something, and there's been issues recently in one of the buildings. And I just basically, I went pretty hard and said, you know, this is an ADA violation. And I, I, I really, you know, if you can't expect us to show up early before you block off a lane, if every able-bodied person doesn't have to experience the same thing. Um, I think it makes me a little bit more compassionate towards my kids when they're really going through something hard. Um, but I've often said to them, you know, you're at a moment where do you give up trying to make this better or do you figure out how to manage it better or do you try and fix it? So I think I do have with some of my kids, I'm able to say, listen, I I get how hard this is. I get how exhausting it is, especially my kids who have cerebral palsy or um, sort of physical issues where it's hard, but you have to keep moving. So how are you going to be the best you you can be? And, And like I've said, you know, any sort of diagnosis you get, whether it's you can't say your R's. Uh, or you get diagnosed with uh, an incurable disease. When it happens to you, it's a big deal. You look at the scheme of things and be like, oh, well, one is not as serious as the other. But when it happens to you, and I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you, when I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, I remember a very dear friend of mine said to me, oh, well, thyroid, that's not a big deal. And at the time, like my body was so out of control with my hormones. Mm-hmm. I was so skinny. I was a size two and those clothes were big on me. Mm-hmm. Um, my body was like a rubber band and I, I would get angry and just everything was going on and I did not feel like myself. And when that person said that to me, I was like, how dare you? But I didn't say anything. Cause again, I'm a people pleaser. And then I felt guilty. I'm like, well, she's right. I don't have cancer. And then I really like, no. when it happens to you, it's a big deal. And nobody should, you know, minimize something you're going through. Mm. It just, it's, well, and, yeah. It's not the end of the world. It's a different way of living in the world. And it's hard to find that balance. And that's a balance that changes as you get older. Like you went from being somebody living with RA to being a mom with (laughs) RA. I haven't had that experience, but now I'm looking at how am I going to be a retired person with RA and afford my medications and my, and do I want to live in a Northern state? Cause I live in Philadelphia. Do I want mm-hmm. to stay here where there's snow? No, I want to move somewhere warmer because cold is painful. Mm-hmm. Um, you should go so, move to Arizona with Wendy Hawk. Do you know Wendy Hawkins? No, I oh, don't. But she runs a group. Um, Arizona has been group. my list because yeah. my hair looks fabulous in Arizona. Yeah. The humidity is good, but there's, I'm sort of at a transition place right now where I'm trying to plan for the transition. I just don't know what the right thing to do is. So I'm trying different things and hopefully I will, you know, my ultimate life, I would live on a big ranch with lots of rescue animals and, and 
a million dollars where you don't have to worry about bills. Oh and, yeah. You know, personal chef. Yeah. yeah. I actually in, in our room to room to thrive group, we, there's this recurring theme of, um, we call it like room Island, like rheumatoid Island where like we invite people we'll say, okay, this doctor's invited to the Island or they're not invited. And it's like this Island where everything that we want and need is there, right? Like yeah. all the people understand you and give you benefit of the doubt. The doctors listen, you have every, you know, every chair is comfortable and you have heating pads and cooling pads, you know, at the snap of a finger. And yeah, I, but sorry, I didn't mean to, I, I just went on a tangent from that, but about no, retirement. So important. And like I, my car was just demolished in front of my home. Oh, and my gosh. so I had to get a rental and the only rental I could get on a holiday weekend was a Jeep Wrangler, which is an awesome car. They're awesome. They're very cool. I'm not an off-roader, so I wasn't going to take the doors off and, and it's freezing. But um, climbing in and out of it, my hip is killing me. Oh, and yeah. the seats, they're, it's a great car. It is a fantastic car. But I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to keep climbing in and out of this. It's too hard for me. So I switched it out and I got a Chevy. I think it's an Equinox right now. And I sat in it and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much more comfortable. Like I'm not in pain when I get in this. And sometimes I... I'm so I did. Um, why am I? I'm having a brain fog since COVID so badly. Um, a meditation, meaningful meditation, mindfulness, mindfulness. Oh yes, meditation. And I I took a very amazing course through the University of uh, Thomas Jefferson University Hospital has a program, and I've learned to kind of live with pain where I know I have it, but I can focus enough that I kind of keep it at my fingertips. Yeah. yeah. Way, obviously it comes rushing back, but I think that's how I get through most of my, I keep everything here. Right. I acknowledge that it's there, but I focus on what I need to do as much as I can. And it mm -hmm. works for the most part. It's not a cure, but it definitely is a good, strong tool in my toolbox. But I think I'm so used to being in pain that when anything else gets added into it, like, um, I broke my foot or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I cut something. I can't deal with that extra pain. Mm, it's like yeah. a sensory overload for me because my body is not used to that level of pain on top of the pain that I'm used to. So somebody said, one of the doctors was like, you must have a low level of pain threshold. I'm like, yeah, no, <laughs> no I don't. Um, but yeah, it's like all those little things. And like I said, from the beginning, having somebody who gets it and understands, yes. you know, why would you switch out that car? Cause my hip was killing me. Like I'm not an old woman, but oh my gosh, that hip is killing me from just pulling myself into it. Oh yeah. The, all of the little activities of daily living, like getting in and out of the car, brushing your hair, so many things can become... I'm in a ponytail because today yeah. there was just no way I could do my hair. For years, I never blew my hair dry because it was just too much. I mean, also I just yeah. was not interested in it as well. But yeah, once I mean, it's 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 work. It's work for your hands. It's energetic, you know, t expenditure. Rarely air ever blow my hair dry, and so I always get ready at night. 
I shower well, that's it. A good, okay. That's a good life tip. Because sure. I start work at 7.20 some days. Mm. I cannot, and it takes me a long time to fall asleep at night. I can't get up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning to shower and get ready. And do. I can't do that. So I right. shower the night before. I let my hair air dry. I braid it. And then right. I get up in the morning. And if it's a good morning, I curl it. Okay. Morning. That's why my hair is long now. So I can just put it up mm-hmm. and it is what it is. Um, you know, yeah. I wear a lot of zippers. I don't wear a lot of buttons. Um, I just can't, you know, right. shoes are primarily mules mm-hmm. because I always tie shoes or handle the swelling that my feet go through during the day. So I have to be able to take them on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So it really does like it impacts so much of my day, but now it's just habit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you kind of, you know, one thing I recommend for people is like kind of become a detective in your own life. Like what are all the little small areas where you could swap something easier, like sl- slip on shoes versus shoes that you tie, you know, a different kind of a wide grip for a pencil or different way of holding the pencil, little things like that. Yeah. They could, definitely, um, give you some, some helpful life hacks, but I want to make sure that I give some time to talking about pets and the role, because you mentioned mindfulness, you know, Mm -hmm. tools and, um, and then kind of a refocusing strategy where if you're in a pain, kind of refocusing Mm -hmm. on what's, you know, your life, but what has been the role of your, you know, animals in your life and coping and the joy they bring just whatever you want to say. Well, originally I always had dogs growing up. And once I bought my house, I, you know, I used to the Jersey shore, which is a very popular TV show. Um, if you live in Philadelphia, the weekends are spent down the shore. We don't say at the beach, we don't say going go down the shore. And, um, that was my lifestyle. So every weekend I was down the shore in the summer. Um, I traveled a lot. I did. So I didn't really have a lifestyle that I thought I could have a dog. Once I bought my house, I was around 31, 32. Again, I was still traveling a lot and I had a dog that lived with my parents and I didn't feel right getting a dog while she was still alive because she was mine. Mm-hmm. And I gave my mom and dad because I couldn't have her with me. So. I had cats who that I, I adored. I never had cats. My mom never liked cats. She now loves cats, but, um, I had cats and I loved them. And then for my 40th birthday, I was like, I want my dream dog. And I made a mistake because I didn't research the health. I, I read it, but I mean, I had a dog. She was, um, epileptic, diabetic. You know, I, I thought I knew what we were doing. I was going to do. It was fine. And then I got George Grace, who's a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, like your Teddy and my Finny Roo. And Georgia was bred by a backyard breeder who loved dogs, but again, didn't do the heart testing, didn't do the neurological testing. Um, And Georgia was a lemon, which is why I wrote the book, Making Lemonade with Georgia Grace. So at age two, the dog that I got to get me, you know, I researched like a dog that didn't need a lot of grooming. I could handle the brushing, (coughs) excuse me, um, didn't need a ton of exercise, um, could handle the fact that I had a small yard, Mm -hmm. 
So I got a breed that I felt would fit my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Plus I was a big fan of sex in the city and Elizabeth Taylor was the dog on there. Yeah. <laughs> and a coworker who had two. So I just, that was the, that was the breed that I wanted. And she was the best thing that ever happened to me. But at age two, she was diagnosed with syringomyelia, mm-hmm. which is a very painful disorder and living in pain. I went into panic mode. I can't let my dog suffer. I can't let my dog. So I pursued avenues that like most people wouldn't, um, I, you know, she was the first dog in the state of Pennsylvania taking cannabis. Uh, My dog had acupuncture. Um, And every year she kept getting more and more. So, you know, she had syringomyelia, which is a, like a, and Chiari malformation. So part of her skull was pressing on her brain and she was leaking spinal cord fluid. Um, So we did the acupuncture and, and, and I was told she wouldn't live past three by multiple because I wouldn't be able to control her level of pain. Mm-hmm. So she was on, by the time she died, she lived till um, she died right before her 11th birthday. Mm. She was on 17 pills a day, wow. two shots of insulin. Her medical care each month was more than my mortgage. And I worked five jobs wow. just to give her quality of life. I went overboard, but I think everything I did I was able to manage her pain. And I think um, it got to the point where I could just look at her and be like, okay, she, there's something not right. Mm. But I think she was my partner in sort of the whole journey. Um, If I hurt, she laid with me. If I, if I felt good, she would go with me. And she was like my sounding board of, you know, okay, I might need to take it easy today. Like she can't do this. So let's have it be an easy day. And I think it was my part, my neurotic desire to make sure her life was as pain-free as possible. And also my knowledge of how to manage chronic illness kept her going. Um, And it's funny because again, Finny Rue was gifted to me and she's a blessing and having a healthy dog is so different and I knew I couldn't meet her needs. So she goes to doggy daycare and she, oh, yeah. she gets a lot more, she's much more active. And I really try and make sure she's, you know, she's a pandemic puppy. So I'm really trying to like catch her up on all the socializing and right. get out and doing stuff. I think at some point she's going to make a good therapy dog. Georgia was a fantastic therapy dog. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to get this one to this point because again, she was pretty much with me only. Right, right. But I think having a pet that you can manage, I love gray nose or blue nose pit bulls. I think they're the most beautiful dogs. Could I manage a pit bull? No, I can't. Mm -hmm. I couldn't give them. Do I love huskies? Absolutely. I love them all, but I can't physically take care of them. Um, Sorry, my phone was going off here. That's okay. Uh, Sorry about that. Um, So again, I, I got pets that I can manage. I got yeah. pets that I knew the size wise, I could pick her up. Um, you know, That's and huge. I, I did it. I obsessively, you know, researched before getting Teddy. And that was the thing that came up over and over again. Like the number one mistake new pet owners make is choosing a dog based on how cute it is 
and not based on how it fits your lifestyle and your abilities. Like I actually wanted to do a rescue, but I just, you know, as a first time dog parent, never had a dog before, had a four-year-old at the time and two cats. I'm like, I just don't, I don't know if I have the ability to train you know, a rescue dog who, uh, with a past that's unknown in a way that is safe, you know, for my family, even if it is right. one of these easy temperament dogs, like a Cavalier, any dog has the ability to. And I, know. yeah, I do a lot with Cavalier rescue in terms of donations and we raise money for, for various organizations that really rehabilitate and rescue yeah. mill and mill daddies. <clears throat> and I, I never had a purebred. I rescued, we had mutts. Now they're called designer dogs, but I never had, <laughs> never had a purebred dog. Every dog came from the pound. Every dog was yeah. a rescue. Uh, and now when I know, you know, I work full time, I am not home during the day. Mm -hmm. I am not rescuing a dog that I can't dedicate what they right. need. Right. Getting a right. puppy, she adapted to my schedule. So right. she's able to be left home when I work. She's not alone. She has two cats. Um, she loves it. I have neighbors that can get to her if I need, mm -hmm. you know, but um, yeah, it was rescue is a big passion of mine, but I know my lifestyle doesn't lend to it. And I know a lot of people have made the mistake with the best intentions to rescue a dog and the dog just did not fit their lifestyle or the dog mm -hmm. couldn't handle being left alone. The dog couldn't mm -hmm. handle getting in the car to go to grandma's house like those little things right now my dog is snoring so loud on my back but she's <laughs> a cutie yeah. yeah yeah no and I think there's I, I think you pointed out something I think is is super important for people may you know who do want to support mm -hmm. you know animal rescues like we make a donation to the humane society you know in in honor of all the work that they're doing. And there's other, you know, a lot of times nonprofits, they need, they need donations, right. you know, so um, you can do it. You can help in other ways, you know. Um, exactly. And, now, and so. Not a rescue, but she was often featured on rescue websites and she oh, was, nice. when she died, I heard from 26 countries. Cause again, I wrote a book about her. So yes. people all around the world knew about Georgia Grace. And I didn't realize that. Like I used to joke, I'm like, yeah, I'm her momager. And then I, when she died, like I, I got cards from around the world. I got message. I still get messages about her, but, um, we raised money and we were able, it was an Arizona rescue. We were able oh, okay. to buy off their Amazon wish list, And that's amazing. So much to me because people really towards the end, twice, I had to have people help me because yeah. I couldn't. Her, her hospital bills were outrageous and she wasn't ready to leave me, yeah. was not ready yeah. and people helped me. So I felt so good that we were able to help dogs that really needed it. Because again, Georgia was not a rescue, but I feel like in a way, not many people would have kept her. Um, yeah. And there's one other person who had a dog with similar issues and she's actually from Washington. His name was Stewie oh. and Stewie the Cavalier. Okay. And Stewie. <laughs> and he had a lot of stuff too, wasn't supposed to live. And, you know, his mom and I talk and we're like, it was so hard. And <clears throat> she had medical issues. So you would think it would be so much harder. I'm sorry. Oh, no, yeah, no worries. <clears throat> but yeah.
So, you know, you would think having a dog with special needs would be so much more taxing. And I do think it was, but also it kept me focused. And I think I was the right parent for the right dog. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I hope everyone checks out, you know, your blog and also your books because they're really, they're, they're wonderful. And, um, you know, I know that you haven't been feeling well recently. And so I appreciate you taking an hour to chat, but is there anything else you wanted to say before? we wrap up? Um, no, not really. I did. If they check out my blog, they'll see, I did start, <clears throat> excuse me again. I'm like, <coughs> okay. <coughs> I did start writing romance novels, which is not for everybody's cup of tea, but I wanted to focus on, they're called chronic romance and it's about I people it. diagnoses. So one is about someone with thyroid cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have thyroid cancer, but I did have Graves' disease, and so I kind of went through the experience. Uh, and there's drama, and there's romance, and whatever. But and then um, the second one is called Dragonfly, and that's really about a person going through a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, and sort of what that was like, and just showing that you can have a career, and you can have a family, and you can have a life. And again, it's end of the world. It's a different way of living in the world, and it's finding that balance is really key. So if I can help somebody along the way, find that balance or just let them know that they're not the only person out there looking for that balance, then, you know, the, the, the limp (laughs) that I do is worth it. Um, that's, that's all. But I think, I think we have an amazing network of people that we both know that Yeah. I learned so much from everybody. I learned from you. I learned from, um, Tiffany, from chronic Eileen, from, um, Carice, uh, Carice Hill and yeah. all these people that are just step constant, like all these people oh. who are just amazing and, yeah. and just brilliant in how they can, you know, I'll say, Hey, my doctor said this and I'm just not sure. And within five seconds I have support. Yeah. <clears throat> and truly, so- yeah. You really are not alone. And that's, I think whenever, you know, I, I go on this soapbox all the time about, you know, the power of social media for a chronic <laughs> illness community and that, you know, I know that there's downsides of social media, but having access, you know, to people, I didn't know a single person my age who had right. even a similar condition, you know, when I was diagnosed at age 21, we figured it out. I kept saying right. 20 because it was like the month. Yeah. Anyway, it's a month before my birthday, but, um, <laughs> so, you know, the fact that now people can get diagnosed and, you know, in the wait, you know, on, in the waiting room after their appointment, they could just go, you know, not Google, but like go on Instagram and like find people and just see what life could look like is, is really reassuring, I think to people. And, you know, social media can be a terrible place. And I think, um, we were talking earlier about Effie Colipolis's, um, yeah. And I did write, and I forgot what I wrote, but I did have the title and it was called a stranger thing because Uh people who knew me didn't know how to help me. With strangers on the internet that I connected with that really did help me. And there are pitfalls, but you can get invited to a lot of arguments, but you don't have to accept that invitation. So there are people, ah. in- <clears throat> I don't have to engage with them if I don't want to. And it's not being me being elitist or me not valuing who they are. It's just, I don't have to, you know, engage with them. And I've really set very strong boundaries. <coughs> yeah. Cause I get, who love cavaliers who try and friend me and 
people who, you know, have arthritis that try and friend me. And I'm like, if I don't really know you, I don't, I don't have, we don't need to be friends. We can follow a social media page and just be, just be friends that way. So I think it's definitely connection is important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I boundaries is something that I'm definitely still working on. Um, so I appreciate anyone modeling healthy boundaries. Cause I, I'm, I would just say I'm very inconsistent. Sometimes I'm in an optimistic mood and I'm like, sure, I'm going to invite everyone into my life. And then I'll have to realize, no, like there are, you know, there are some things that are meant to be, you know, yeah. between get and trust me menopause gives you more bravery than you ever expected to have (laughs) I think just getting older has yeah yeah I just don't I just don't care and not that I don't it's not that I don't care with a lack of respect it's that you know you can you can have all kinds of opinions and that is fine but I found through my blog I have a core group of people who followed me for years I don't know why they still stick with me but they do Finny Rue would like to say Hi. They have. Oh, she's she's exhausted from sleeping all day. Oh yeah, that's how mine is. Yeah, exhausting. My poor baby. Um, But yeah, and you know what's really funny? The funniest part of the whole thing. I'm in a group uh, that does a lot with Cavalier Rescue, and there was a woman who followed my blog. I didn't realize she didn't know I was as my joints turn. Oh my gosh. That is so, yeah. When people put the dots together, like you're that person. Yeah. So I posted a picture of myself in Georgia and I get this message. She goes, oh my, how did I not know you were her? I had I no idea. It just happens or, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. It was a big part of my blog back in the day because a lot of stuff that we did was very similar and she was just so cute. Um, but yeah, people didn't know. Um, so I have, I probably have about two dozen people who followed me originally for my blog, but also had Cavaliers. Yeah. 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 And, That's um, amazing. yeah, it's so funny. Cause I, I was like, Oh, I thought you knew that's who I was. It's such a small world. It, it, it truly, it truly, truly is. And I think chronic illness is one of the things that it does transcend all, you know, it transcends, it can happen to anyone, regardless of age, religion, you know, favorite dog breed. Yep. Mm-hmm. can happen to anyone. So yeah, it's making those connections online has been just, yeah, for me being an extrovert, it's been a lifeline, especially during the pandemic when we were like physically isolated. Yeah. I think Zoom, I got sick of it because it was really my entire life. It was work all day yeah, long. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. It was, you know, doing podcasts and you know, I mean, I think all of us were in a panic in that beginning. I mean, we didn't think we would survive. Yeah. And I originally didn't want to take the vaccine. I'm like, no way am I taking a rush vaccine. And then it was actually talking to rheumatologists from all over the world. Oh yeah. I'm going to take the vaccine. I get it. Um, and again, it's a personal choice and, you know, I have very strong feelings about everything that happened because I had such traumatic loss. Um, but I think, you know, it's a balancing act. I I have to, you know, with having pneumonia and COVID and this car accident, I I really, I was driving home today. I'm like, I have to take care of my mental health. I have to make an appointment, see somebody, um, Mm -hmm. little things that like, it's one more thing to do, but I know I have to do it. 
So yeah. And, and live and learn and, and, but boundaries are something I've become better at as I've gotten older and you just got to sometimes be like, yeah, no, I don't need, I don't like drama and I hate when I'm invited to it. So that's why I I don't have to join. I could say no to your drama and it's okay. Yeah. I, I need to repeat that to myself. Well, thank you so much. I want to give you some time to rest because you've been through yeah. a lot. Your voice is, I know, getting a little tired, but thank you so much. And I will share all of your links to your social media and your, um, so if people want to, you know, see what you've written in, in your blog, um, uh, they can do that. So thank you again. Thank you, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad to be able to talk longer and we should do this again sometime. Bye-bye for now. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you. Bye.